Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. I'm Bobby Tishy along with Cole Fisher, and we have a very special guest with us today. Well, I wouldn't say very special. We have a guest with us today, Tim Mosa, (laughs) Managing Director. Oh, no problem. I wanted to make sure you felt really honored to be part of the podcast. We really feel like we got a person to come on today. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to to be here. Thanks for the warm welcome, and uh, nice to know that... uh, I meet the the strict standards for participation today. It sounds like I had to have a, a pulse. Definitely, yeah. We uh, we don't like dead people on the pod. Uh, <laughs> usually doesn't provide a lot of good content. But if you wouldn't mind just doing a brief intro of yourself, uh, what you do here at Lev, um, what your career's been like, and where you live and stuff, that'd be great. Happy to do so. Yes, my name is Tim Mosa. I'm a managing director uh, here at Lev. Um, I lead our media and entertainment practice and. Um, my career, I've been helping uh, clients with large marketing technology transformation programs. Um, we're usually sitting at the intersection of media and entertainment and marketing. Um, born and raised in Southern California, so I've done a lot of work with the studios out here on the West Coast. And uh, I happen to be a really big baseball fan, really big movie fan. And so uh, I really enjoy talking about movies, film, um, and increasingly uh, how um, live events are becoming part of um, the the streaming world. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that plays right into the main element of why we wanted you to join the podcast today to focus on media and entertainment and what that landscape looks like and some thought leadership around it. And to kind of set the stage, Cole, I'll let you jump in here and um, kind of bridge the gap over to Tim. Yeah, this is, I think, a really timely uh, podcast for us. I mean, as, as as we all know, we're still sitting in social lockdown and quarantine right now. And um, we find ourselves, uh, you know, everybody is sort of captivated audience at this point. We're looking for, um, you know, the next podcast, the next uh, docu-series, movies, things like that. Uh, it's It's people that are getting a little stir crazy that are looking for uh, you know, that, that next thing to keep them entertained while they're, you know, locked in four walls here. So what we're seeing is, you know, companies like um, videos, gaming, on-demand, um, podcasts, the, the Netflixes and, and, and Disney Plus, Hulus of the world are finding more and more demand than they've ever seen before. Um, so they, they've kind of had this moment of, you know, we need to stop, assess what's going on how we're going to adapt to this change and how we need to bring really that a game experience to customers and end users. Um, because this is one of those few industries right now that is, um, is, or, and should be spiking, uh, when everything else is really kind of struggling right now. 
So, uh, you know, in terms of what that looks like in the Salesforce ecosystem, um, Tim, we're kind of hoping that you can shed a little light on some of the uh, more recent uh, fun findings and um, game changers that have occurred uh, lately. Yeah, happy to do so. There's some, there are some very interesting trends we're seeing during the COVID-19 lockdown, um, but I think longer term, there's some broader trends um, as, the, as the COVID lockdown hopefully ends soon. And we certainly hope everybody's well and safe out there as they're listening to this. I think there's some broader trends that we'll start to see emerging uh, that I'm happy to chat about and excited to talk about today as well. Great. Um, I think there are kind of two, two main things we wanted to focus on. One is just how the landscape is changing to your point, Tim, especially around two main elements. One is this kind of notion of gaming casinos and, and podcasts um, kind of joining forces, but also just the acceleration of podcasts um, as one part of it. And then also um, the, the VOD or video on demand section as well. And as we kind of talk through this, um, Tim will be focusing on the strategy piece of it while Cole and I jump in and talk through some of the technical aspects of this, right? So we've worked with a lot of customers who have gone through, um, whether it's mergers or acquisitions or new ventures um, within the media and entertainment space. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, how they're using Salesforce as a platform to launch and accelerate some of those things that they're doing. So kind of kicking it off and thinking more on the strategy piece, kicking it to you, Tim, of those gaming podcasts. Um, we have a number of different people in the space, like a Spotify or um, there's a, a couple of other luminaries, another podcasting platform that have really taken off. Um, and so it's kind of this, this race for content. And there's been some interesting findings and kind of actions that some of I wouldn't say the what we would think of as normal players in this space have taken. Yeah, I I, I think that's uh, that's uh, exactly correct. Um, you alluded to it. There's uh, there are um, so many different streaming services out there now uh, in the U.S. There's more than three hundred, um, and the average U.S. household has three point is subscribed to three point four. Uh, different streaming services, which typically defined as uh, Netflix, uh, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Spotify definitely fits in there. Um, audio, video, um, really usually um, uh, are the ways that uh, those numbers are compiled. But um, for today's conversation, I did want to include podcasts because um, I think it's a really interesting part of the. Uh, ecosystem of content that's out there. Um, and while the number of streaming services is growing, it is finite and the number and the amount of content is growing, but the amount of content that can be produced is also finite. Um, the one asset that is not finite, um, that is limited would be time and free time. And so, um, when you think of podcasts as being part of that streaming ecosystem, um, podcasts are absolutely in competition for viewership or listenership from uh, from end user consumption. And um, uh, one of those podcasts that's recently been in the news, um, and we want to talk about a little bit today, is Barstool Sports. Barstool Sports um, has uh, 
uh, a social and streaming presence. Uh, they have a number of different podcasts. Um, they like to describe themselves as the intersection of, uh, I think they call it sports and uh, lowbrow comedy or something to that effect. It's, um, but they have uh, 8 million uh, monthly unique viewers or view, unique listeners rather to their podcast. And there's a number of different brands that they have. Um, so they've got quite a following. Um, and you think about podcasting and sports and there's definitely a discrete audience there. Um, and Barstool Sports was re recently acquired in the last six or eight months by uh, Penn National Gaming, which is uh, Penn is a um, is a um, uh, casino uh, that owns and operates a number of properties throughout North America. There are some in Las Vegas, but there's uh, there's a, uh, a handful that sit outside of uh, outside of Nevada. And so uh, PNG or Penn uh, acquires Barstool Sports, and you might think that that's an odd acquisition. Why would a casino want to own a series of podcasts? If you think about the revenue that they can drive not only from advertising sales through those podcasts, but also what might be even more interesting, uh, especially to a marketer, would be the listenership or the viewership or the audience that they're acquiring by, by picking a Barstool Sports. Like I said, 8 million unique monthly listeners. Uh, that data is from about 2018, so it's a little dated, but it's a decent number a sizable number, um, gaining access to that audience um, not only allows, as I said, for advertising sales, but what perhaps is more interesting and more important is it's a new or a differentiated, differentiated audience that the casino proper can now market to, um, either to bring those listeners, those podcast listeners, into uh, the, the Penn casinos that are across North America, but also with an increasing uh, online gaming presence uh, in the economy today, it allows Penn to position themselves for um, marketing to Barstool Sports listeners for the purposes of online gaming. And they certainly already know that those listeners are interested in sports, given the content that Barstool focuses on. So sports gaming online, suddenly you have a really interesting way to market to your end listeners. And of course, then that brings us to the tech side of things, which means, which is uh, to say, you need to have the proper tools in place to be able to reach that audience with relevant content um, through the appropriate channels and get them engaged either with your casino or with your, uh, your online gaming presence. I think that's a really good point. I, I think to what you had mentioned earlier is Barstool knows the audience that they're getting, especially around that gambling piece of it. So Barstool itself has the barstoolbets.com. So they've already got this, not only this section of people or this audience of people who love sports, but they also have this audience of people who are betting on these sports. So it's a, it's a really, I think, innovative marriage, the way that, the way that I think about it, but also um, makes a lot of sense for both sides because they're, they're getting an audience that they wouldn't normally have, um, but also um, kind of, I want to say buying the audience, um, 
it's probably the best way of saying it though, buying an audience for a new product that they're going to launch. Yeah. And, um, you know, more and more we see, uh, especially in the streaming, what they call the streaming wars, quote unquote, um, there's only so much content you can produce and the content, uh, like we said, uh, it is somewhat finite. Um, it also has a shelf life. Um, people will stream a particular show as, um, whether it's Tiger King, which is top of mind right now as we speak, but over, over time and over a very short period of time, people will watch that show. Um, it, it expires or it becomes less meaningful or relevant, less watched. But what persists is the audience, that audience uh, that is intrigued by Game of Thrones or Narcos uh, or Ozark uh, or Friends. Um, Friends might be a fantastic example. Um, that audience, that community that organizes themselves um, and orients themselves to that content and to that show that persists. And here you can, you'll see that with barstool sports um, and certainly fans of, of sports, people who listen to a barstool sports podcast, who like online gaming, um, you know that that community is going to persist for much longer than one podcast or two podcasts. And um, Penn now has an opportunity to engage with those fans um, because they know that they like sports and they like to gamble. And lo and behold, Penn offers all of the above. Isn't that a, isn't that a great marriage? And I think that last point you mentioned brings up something that we see a lot where a company acquires another company or two companies merge. A lot of times it seems like they have a hard time integrating the two, especially when it comes to data. And so how do we, as we think about it technically or functionally, you know, we've got these two companies that merge together, or one company that acquires a majority stake and another like Penn does a bar stool. And a lot of times I think out of, outside of our world, people think of it as, okay, well, they're able to put that revenue now on their balance sheet. You know, they're just trying to grow or it's a strategic decision like what we were talking about. But a lot of the benefit from what, what we've been talking about already of that data and that audience that Barstool brings to Penn and vice versa, how do you act on that? How do you merge these kind of processes together to make sure that you're taking advantage of this new property or this new entity that you just acquired or merged with. And we've seen it, you know, for years and years as someone gets acquired, they're kind of typically in my, in my experience, two, uh, uh, two outcomes of that or two approaches to it. One is, is we're just going to leave that business alone. We're going to let it um, operate as a separate entity. And then the other is we want to bring these people in right away. And we're actually going something going through very similar to that right now where we're, they want to bring it in right away. Um, they want to understand the processes um, from a, this is more speaking to MarTech, but they're evaluating those processes and migrating them over to their current MarTech stack. Um, but as you kind of, as we kind of go into this, Cole, I'd love for you to touch on when one company does acquire another and they want to integrate them right away, we typically think of a couple main things that they want to do. And what are those things and how can we make sure companies can integrate and start using a lot of that data and functionality right away? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting like Pac-Man versus Pac-Man concept where you're, you, you try to think of like what's the criteria that we decide, you know, one instance 
um, becomes the other or, or how do we kind of fold in one to the other. Um, generally speaking, what we'll see is the acquiring company, right, typically has the larger footprint, more of a complex data model, um, more of a structure with multiple lines of business as maybe they've had acquisitions before, uh, whereas the company being acquired may be uh, a little more nimble, have things a little more straightforward and not be quite as uh, bogged down with lots of processes and things like that. And so what tends to be the default is that the acquiring company will fold that new company into its Salesforce instance. Um, that's not always the case. We've seen exceptions to that rule. Um, a lot of the times if, if the acquisition is of a company that has just more um, complex data, uh, you know, we'll think a lot about um, master data management and integrations that are involved, what has to be rebuilt um, or, or migrated over to a new instance. If that's a little too complex, then it makes sense to, to keep it there. Then we just set up um, as different businesses, business units, the uh, acquiring company and the, and the new one. But generally speaking, the acquiring company will be the one that folds in uh, the newer company. Now with that, though, comes a lot of update to processes. Um, there's a lot of learnings around what the acquiring company is doing, how they're leveraging uh, their audience, audience segments. Um, and then of course, how that actually mutually benefits both. So what can the new company do to start building um, uh, a well-rounded view of what that customer is? Where do they share an overlap of customer? Where's the opportunity for overlap? Uh, especially when we think about um, DMP and ads and how those, those audiences can cross pollinate and grow for both lines of business. And one thing that we, to, to call your point about bringing the business units over a lot of times, um, they'll have to be a separate business unit because they could still be separate legal entities, but also from a data and privacy standpoint, we want to make sure that we are acknowledging GDPR, CCPA, all of those different elements too. So just because Pen Gaming acquires Barstool, for example, does not necessarily mean that we can just mix all of that data together on day one. There's usually some protocols to that, identifying all these different processes, where they should migrate, should they be migrated, um, and that sort of thing. So Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of kind of top-down executional approach when we think about that. So like not just privacy, but as well security, uh, data security, uh, even, you know, going as you get down into the more tactical weeds of like, you know, what does that look like from IP sending best practices and how do we communicate this to customers that, that this is happening um, and, you know, do they need to, you know, how, how soon do they need to be aware of and what does that cross-professional marketing look like for both lines of businesses and how do we make sure that the customer is well represented and respected in that regard too? And as part of that too, if you're, if you're one of these companies that's gotten acquired or you're the one doing the acquiring and you're going to be part of uh, the, the MarTech or any kind of technology evaluation of things that need to be migrated or implemented as part of this acquisition, most of the time in the companies that we work with, work with is there is a separate budget altogether for this merger and acquisition. So something to keep in mind of, it's not something that typically has to come out of your department's budget. As an example, it's typically coming from somewhere else. So if that hasn't been communicated and you're going through this process, um, it might be good for you to, to research that a little bit more. Transitioning to our second topic of video on demand and 
uh, how, especially right now, Tim, to your point earlier, we talked about how, uh, you know, there's right now content is king because we're consuming it at probably a faster rate than ever, uh, I would imagine, volume wise. And so it's, you know, originally we were thinking through what it's like to keep customers engaged or what it's like to keep customers on the platform. But I think even now there's another portion of this of how do I how do I keep them on the platform, but how do I keep them uh, entertained through this time where there's a lot of downtime or a lot of time where people normally wouldn't have to consume a lot of this content? Yeah. Um, you know, whether, whether you're, we're talking about uh, advertising video on demand, like uh, Hulu or a subscription video on demand, like Netflix or Amazon prime, um, um, HBO, um, what we're seeing in the industry is about a 37% churn rate. So there people are moving from platform to platform. Um, and so there is this, um, desire to keep consumers engaged for sure. And I think that transition from platform to platform though is indicative of, um, and really a compelling start part of the story because the barrier to entry and exit for these different platforms is very low. It's, it's easy or easier for me to subscribe to a new over the top service than it was say to sign up for a new cable service. It's also easier for me to exit exit uh, in the cable world meant I had to have a technician come out. I, had, I needed new hardware. I had to swap out old hardware. Um, I had to activate the service, et cetera, et cetera. Um, exiting uh, in the streaming world is I simply move from one app to another on my smart television. Um, so as a result, the notion of keeping subscribers engaged or re-engaged changes a bit because churn now is defined by switching from um, Hulu to Netflix um, or similar. Um, and what we're seeing is, um, I think, two key trends that um, rise to the surface that um, streaming services uh, and enterprises are trying to address. One is the is the notion of customer service or customer experience. Um, and for many clients, um, you know, customer experience is a new thing as it relates to a streaming service. Um, the, uh, the other uh, item that enterprises are trying to address would be the notion of subscription fatigue um, and addressing the fact that people get tired or get frustrated by having to maintain or manage multiple subscriptions um, and the process of, of subscribing or uh, maintaining those subscriptions um, on the, uh, you know, on the former, which has to do with customer experience, um, you know, streaming services are, they're treating viewers and looking at them through the lens of an entire life cycle, just like any other business. Um, but like I said, the uh, onboarding and activation is so much easier and, and simpler um, that streaming service providers are really focused there to make it as easy as possible and allow for consumers to quickly um, sign up for a streaming service, uh, which is the onboarding piece, but then you have to activate. So it's not enough just to sign up and you've got to you have to download an app usually for to your smart TV. 
um, and then activate your service uh, and get logged in and the like. Um, and uh, I think what's interesting here is for a long time, people have been talking about how uh, email is dead or email marketing is dead or dying. But what we see with streaming services is that email becomes the central ID for the consumer. Um, it's the way that people get logged in. Um, it's a secure channel. It's a private channel. Um, and it's a unique identifier. And that allows people to get get, uh, get onboarded and get uh, activated onto the platform. And then, of course, as viewers, uh, as consumers engage with you know, whatever content they're interested in through whatever service they're using, uh, that service then uh, can take that information um, and use it for uh, outbound marketing purposes further in the customer lifecycle through engagement and perhaps into loyalty, serving up um, uh, information about new content or relevant content. Uh, for example, um, um, Disney Plus just launched a new uh, Pixar release this weekend, and I got an email about that. And um, that's just like an example of um, how streaming services are using email to engage with their consumers and keep them engaged. Um, I think lastly, as it as it relates to subscription fatigue and maybe the, the switching that occurs uh, at the end of watching a particular con piece of content, again, the churn rate's 37%. But churn doesn't mean that the consumer has left the platform for good. It just means that they've switched platforms and they're moving to a different show. And that notion of seasonality um, becomes more and more prominent. The seasonality that's based on the, when, the sh when the content is made available uh, and how long, it, how long it takes for the consumer to watch. Um, here we see... Um, streaming services and, and the enterprises that support streaming services are using very traditional marketing um, tactics uh, to keep uh, end users consumed, uh, engaged rather. And they're using tactics that stem from uh, longtime streaming capabilities like video games. Um, so in the video game world, which streaming has been around, if you think about playing online with your friends as a, as a function of streaming, that's been around for a long, long time. And video game providers have long known that if you're playing their game more, you are likely to stay engaged on that platform and continue to play. If you're playing less, you are likely to churn and move off of that game or off of their platform. Um, over the top streaming services are following a similar model. The more you're watching, the, the stickier the service, the stickier the show, the more likely you are to remain engaged. Um, the less you're watching, uh, the higher possibility for churn at that point. And when that starts to happen, what we see, as I said, in terms of traditional marketing tactics are win back, win back themes, um, churn prevention trying to keep you engaged before you depart or, or a win back if you have actually left. Um, and in the Salesforce world, there's a number of different tools like Einstein analytics, et cetera, that uh, play into those win back or churn reduction campaigns that many different uh, streaming services are in, are employing now. Yeah, Tim, I think it's um, really interesting. You mentioned like, um, 
engagement and loyalty. Uh, and, you know, especially when I think about what you said about uh, what churn rate really is, what, fit, you know, subscription fatigue really is, uh, and, and that low barrier of entry for entry and exit. Um, it's, it's interesting how much different uh, video on demand these apps deal with a customer lifecycle that looks um, similar but very different from what most customers are really thinking about when they think about customer lifecycle. So, you know, we, we oftentimes think about, you know, awareness, acquisition, conversion, et cetera. Um, but even with, with video on demand, it's almost like all these like sub segments of life cycles within each of, of those and that persistent audience and how we kind of retain them and, and put them back into these and, and make them aware and acquire into new uh, pieces of content and things like that. Um, just because the, the definitions of uh, fatigue and churn and things like that are, are very different than they are in the, in the rest of, um, you know, that, that marketing life cycle. Uh, thought pattern that we typically get into. And so um, it's interesting, yeah, how, how you mentioned, uh, you know, Einstein and Salesforce capabilities and what some marketers are, are doing with that. And so, uh, Bobby, maybe we can touch a little bit on um, how in Salesforce some of this is being dealt with and how video on demand in particular uh, customers are taking advantage of Salesforce product and capabilities uh, to manage those. Yeah, for sure. I just had a couple of questions for Tim first. Tim, of the the brands that you're streaming or the streaming services out there, who do you feel like does the best job of keeping you engaged? Um, I like what Disney Plus has done. Uh, I referenced them in my talk track there. Um, the the messages are clear and concise, and timely. Um, that that seems to be um, that seems to be working for me as a consumer. Um, uh, I also think though that, um, there is a, there is a habitual nature to this thing. Like when I sit in front of my television, I almost always go to Netflix first. Why, why is that the case? I don't really know why, but that's just my default. And, um, for Disney to send messaging that I've, find relevant and timely um, and pull me away from Netflix. Uh, like that, this weekend I went to Disney plus over Netflix because they had sent me an email and I happened to see it. And I think that's just a great example of uh, a streaming service doing a good job of um, engaging with at least one consumer and um, making me aware of new and relevant content, which I thought was really interesting. It's funny you mentioned that. I feel like Netflix is always my default as well, just out of habit. But There's a lot of reporting out there that shows that Netflix is like is the central hub for many, many viewers. That's where they start their streaming investigation. Whether they stay there or not uh, is a different story, but they seem to start at Netflix more frequently than other streaming platforms. It'll be interesting to see just in the space and in the industry, how over the next few years, you know, when we think of walled gardens, we typically think of the, the social networks that kind of have a barrier to getting access to data, um, like the Facebooks or the Googles or the YouTubes of the world. But I also kind of think about these streaming services as walled gardens as well, where um, if I, if I'm interested in just where can I find this particular show or this particular movie 
right now and correct me where I'm wrong, but I really think it's only Roku and, and Fire Stick who have kind of the, the cross platform capabilities to search all of these different places to find one particular show or one particular movie um, where I guess, you know, the Google machine as well. But uh, it'll be interesting to me to over the next few years to see where maybe some of them start to, I don't want to say open up a little bit, but if there's another, you know, third party player that comes in and tries to make this process a little bit easier or somehow integrates some of these different platforms, or if there were if like the, maybe a function of that is just mergers start to happen in the next five or 10 years. Yeah. Um, Roku viewership is up. Um, quarter over quarter. And I think that's a really great example, Roku and Firestick, um, of innovation within the industry. Um, as Roku and Firestick become aggregators of content, we go to Roku and I can, yeah, I can find in um, number of different uh, applications, uh, as well as, um, um, you know, linear television programming and that Roku almost becomes like a version of streaming TV guide in 2020. Um, and instead of, you know, bouncing around trying to find what I'm looking for, I can go to one place, which, uh, seems to be working for Roku for sure. Um, and I think Firestick is having similar success. Yeah. It's an, it's an, it's an interesting way of looking at, I think, customer experience in the, in the sector, as well as how innovation is happening within the, within the sector. Cool. Back to your point about how Salesforce and marketing cloud as a platform can help with some of these tactics. Like to Tim's point around, he got an, uh, an email for the movie onward from Disney plus. And so that's where he went first based off of that, just based on relevancy bias, I'm sure. But I think the other point of this too is that a lot of these uh kind of what we used to think of as studios who were pumping out um, theater related content or movies have now started getting into the streaming game as well our video on demand game and you know we've worked with a number of different studios over the years and i, I i'm bring bring up this challenge that they have of managing the customer life cycle from someone that's interested in the, in the original trailer um, to uh, going to the movie and then once it's released, transitioning to home entertainment and then streaming if that particular uh, studio or brand has a streaming service tied to it. And Cole, I think it goes back to your previous point of just managing the customer life cycle in general. Now, this is obviously a different customer life cycle because there are, there are points at which we have no control over the data. Um, there's no way for studios or, or for anyone really to know that I went to go see Onward in theaters versus Tim um, who saw it on Disney plus, right? So Disney plus has Tim's data, but no one knows that I went to go see Onward except for that particular theater company. They don't share that data back with these studios. And so how do we take or kind of manage that customer life cycle from the first time I view a trailer to maybe getting my data because I'm interested in when this movie comes out and starting to get some communications about it all the way to when it's released on a particular streaming platform. And utilizing Marketing Cloud for that, we've found a, a number of, of really interesting ways to do that um, from building a 
a solution on the Salesforce uh, CRM platform to bring in all that data when someone says they're first interested in the movie to um, analyzing segments and touch points on DMP to recognize when certain people go to certain sites. And then after, once we, we know who they are, um, targeting them for this is coming out on DVD or digital, or this is now available on streaming on Netflix or Amazon or wherever it may be. So it's, um, it's, there's a cross pollination there for sure that you can utilize a ton on the marketing cloud platform through journey builder, through CRM, through, uh, Einstein propensity modeling of likely to buy or not likely to buy all those different elements to better manage that life cycle. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting too, because we, we talk about how the life cycle is very different. Um, how all the barriers to entry and exit are, 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 are lower. And, um, but on top of that, like the, the big advantage though, is, is there's just so much rich data that a lot of these companies have. Uh, I, I think the big challenge for a lot of them, and, and Bob, you mentioned it was identifying who that individual customer is. And a lot of times there's, you know, offline data that we just can't get a hold of, but the data that we do have in terms of like login activity and recency, um, frequency or change in frequency, uh, seasonality of certain types of content or content retirement, um, you know, engagement or abandonment rates, all sorts of things that um, that companies can collect. But I, I think they have one of the big challenges for them is marrying what that looks like on a one-to-one profile um, uh, level. And so, you know, how can you marry that sort of um, wisdom of the general population of, of what's popular, what's trending, what affinities we're seeing um, develop for content versus what is the individual users um, like frequency and engagement and things like that. And so how can we make sure that we're re-engaging them with more uh, content prior to them wrapping up this series or, you know, what's the, 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 the next thing they're going to be looking for once they get through that last episode of Tiger King? Uh, or, or whatever they're watching, right? So I feel like that's one of the big challenges is making sure that, that all that rich data is not only tied to single um, profiles, but is actionable and we can do something with it. There's You're a couple of... Right. Uh, oh, go ahead, Tim. Sorry, Bobby. There's a couple of industry trends here. One very short term and one, I think, longer term that become interesting as it relates to the to the consumer the the short term one my wife was asking me um with covid and theaters effectively shut down at the moment um she asked she said you know is this uh, and a, and a number of studios are now sending their content direct to their streaming platforms and they're just skipping the theatrical window my wife asked me does this mean like this is the end of um going to the going to the movies at the theater and i said no i don't think so it's just a short-term fix because of covid the theatrical window still remains a, a profitable window for most titles and um the exhibitors play a crucial role uh in that theatrical window and the exhibitors um themselves um, hopefully will rebound once this all ends so the theatrical window persists um but allowing the studios um, to distribute their content directly to the streaming channel is something that many have wanted to do for some time. It gives them an opportunity to test that, to see how it works, certainly. The other thing that's interesting is the notion of the home entertainment window, the post-theatrical window, 
starts to change. Um, home entertainment used to, in, in many instances, was thought of as a, a DVD Blu-ray. Um, as that product decreases in production uh, and streaming increases, the home entertainment window shifts from DVD Blu-ray to streaming platform. Um, but to your earlier point, as it shifts to the streaming platform, it gives the studio or the, the producer of the content more meaningful, uh, rich end viewer consumer data, which previously was not available to them. So there's, um, it's just an interesting couple of trends. I think the, the windowing still exists over time. Uh, theatrical is still going to be a huge moneymaker for the studios. They'll keep that window intact. But the notion of what happens in that home entertainment window, I think, will start to shift. It could shorten a bit, but certainly the streaming aspect of the home entertainment window becomes more interesting for uh, the consumer data that can be acquired in that period and on that platform. Well, thanks a bunch, Tim, for joining us today. I really appreciate the insights and kind of what you're seeing within the industry. Jumping over thanks to- Thanks for having me. Oh, for sure. We're always happy to have a healthy living person on the podcast. <laughs> Glad I fit the bill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so jumping over to completely unrelated, uh, this week we were thinking about alternative occupations. So if you weren't doing what you were doing now, what would you be doing? Cole, I'll let you start. Um, you know, I think in keeping with the vein of, uh, of media and entertainment, um, I, I think this has been, I don't know, with my exposure to movies and series um, more now than, than I'm used to. Um, I think about the role of the guy that, like, you know, the soundtrack or the guy that actually scores the music to, um, to movies and series and things like that. I think it's really cool nuance and how that can change, amplify the effect or like enhance uh, a movie. I think particularly about, um, you know, a scene uh, like in the movie Snatch where Brad Pitt knocks out the boxer and it's like the turning point of the whole movie. And instead of some like ominous, you know, scary soundtrack, which you would expect because of what that meant for the, uh, for the plot, what, what it actually is is some sort of like lighthearted, um, you know, harpsichord that's being played that, kind of perfectly mirrors this like awkwardly whimsical um, tone of the entire movie and how it's a comedy, but it's really a very different style of comedy. So I don't know. It's just it's something that's always been interesting to me that I've kind of seen more and more now that I'm, you know, like we said, being exposed to more media and entertainment uh, that I think about was, is one of the coolest, uh, has to be one of the coolest jobs or most rewarding jobs to be able to kind of impact uh, the movie and the audience like that. That said, I have zero musical talent and wouldn't would be all <laughs> it is It is such an important role, though, isn't it? Because it affects the tone of the film of what you're watching, and it will influence how you how you think about that scene. It's and and it goes completely unnoticed in many instances, unless, of course, you're like John Williams and you do the score to um, Star Wars, right? <laughs> That's a good one. Or you're Kenny Loggins, and you pretty much just own it. <laughs> Yeah, hey man, Caddyshack or Top Gun, which which one's the more famous Kenny Loggins song? I don't know. Um, oh boy, now that's a debate. It really is. It really <laughs> is. Um, 
for me, Bobby, the, the obvious answer as a baseball fan would be my occupation ideal, ideally would be center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, but if that's, that might be a bit trite. There's probably a lot of people that might go that direction. Uh, if I did something that maybe was a bit more realistic, I would say optometrist. Um, and that's because uh, optometrists, I wear glasses. I like going to the optometrist. Um, people like, I think people like going to the optometrist. You walk out of there feeling good. You get a new pair of glasses. They affect your vision. It's, uh, it's an enjoyable experience. It's not like going to the dentist or something like that. So I'd say optometrist. Exciting, huh? Oh, very. That's a thrilling, thrilling career choice there. Hey, Tim, I, uh, I'm just wondering real quick if uh, if your answer as the uh, center fielder for the L.A. Dodgers has changed since you were a four-year-old boy. No, it has not. And maybe maybe since three three years old. <laughs> Talk about same. persistent audiences. Tim's one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I am very historically indecisive. I think uh, growing up at one point, I wanted to be the president of the United States. I wanted to be a basketball player. Uh, I wanted to be a trash man. Uh, so like my thought for this is basically on whoever I'm talking to at any particular time. Like I, I remember talking to a good friend of mine who's a financial advisor for Edward Jones. Like, you know, that job sounds like it would be fun. Uh, and then, you know, I talked to... Uh, someone else who works for a, as a CFO of a small construction company, like, you know, I can CFO. It kind of sounds fun. You know, like I, uh, I don't have any big strong opinions on what I, I would, I would do or what I would like to do outside of, outside of this. I don't, I'm, all, I'm also historically terrible at um, like thinking like three steps ahead. My brain just doesn't work that way. It's just, it's very, um, what do I need to do right now? Um, and that's probably why uh, a lot of people um, that are close to me might say that I'm not very bright because I can't, <laughs> I can't think three steps ahead. I can only think of what do I have to do next, not what the repercussions of that might be. So, so you're saying your career choice would be figuring out what you want to eat for lunch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> cool. I think there's an opportunity for us here, Bobby. If you take the former with the latter, um, I think your your career choice should be to give your podcast friends a lot of money. Um, that would be a good career for you. And don't worry about the repercussions later. Just give us your cash and we'll take care of it for you. Bobby, as your three steps ahead advisor, I think that sounds like a terrific idea. Really <laughs> I really should have a three steps ahead advisor. Also, <laughs> to your point, Tim, Anybody who listens to this podcast and rates and reviews us and writes us at in the clouds at lovedigital.com, we will give you $1 million. <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife. <laughs> of Bobby's money. <laughs> yes. That's, uh, that's going to be some pretty disappointed listeners. <laughs> so, uh, well, thanks a bunch, guys, for, uh, for listening in. Uh, Tim and Cole, thank you as always. And we will talk to you soon. 